Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. Today's story comes from Dreams of the Dead by Thomas Ligotti. And in the background, we have a light thunderstorm to help you fall asleep. And now, on with our story time. Within the blackness of a sleep, a few lights began to glow like candles in a cloistered cell. Their illumination was unsteady and dim, issuing from no definite source. Nonetheless, he now discovered many shapes beneath the shadows. Tall buildings whose rooftops nodded groundward. Wide buildings whose facades followed the curve of a street dark buildings, whose windows and doorways tilted like badly hung paintings. And even if he found himself unable to fix his own location in this scene, he knew where his dreams had delivered him once more. Even as the warped structures multiplied in his vision, crowding the lost distance, he possessed a sense of intimacy with each of them, a special knowledge of the spaces inside them, and of the streets which coiled themselves around their mass. Once again, he knew the depths of their foundations, where an obscure life seemed to establish itself, a sequestered civilization of echoes flourishing among groaning walls. Yet, Upon his probing more extensively into such interiors, certain difficulties presented themselves. Stairways that wandered off course into useless places. Caged elevators that urged unwanted stops on their passengers. Thin ladders ascending into a maze of shafts and conduits. The dark valves and arteries of a petrified and monstrous organism, and he knew that every corner of this corroded world was prolific with choices, even if they had to be made blindly in a place where clear consequences and a hierarchy of possibilities were lacking. For there might be a room whose door exuded a desolate serenity, which at first attracts the visitor, who then discovers certain figures enveloped in plush furniture. Figures that do not move or speak, but only stare. And, concluding that these weary mannequins have exercised a bizarre indulgence in repose, the visitor must ponder the alternatives. To linger, or to leave. Eluding the claustral enchantments of such rooms, his gaze now roamed the streets of the stream and scanned the altitudes beyond high sloping roofs. The stars seemed to be no more than silvery cinders which showered up from the mouths of great chimneys and clung to something dark and dense heaving above. A material presence that slouched and slumped, nearly lowering over the horizon. It appeared to him that certain high towers nearly breached this sagging blackness, stretching themselves nightward to attain the farthest possible remove from the world below. 
and toward the peak of one of the highest towers. He spied vague silhouettes that moved hectically in a bright window, twisting and leaning upon the glass like shadow puppets in the fever of some mad dispute. Through the mazy streets, his vision slowly glided, as if carried along by a sluggish draft. Darkened windows reflected the beams of grotesquely configured street lamps, and lighted windows betrayed strange scenes which were left behind long before their full mystery could overwhelm a dreaming traveler. Wandering into thoroughfares more remote, he soared past cluttered gardens and crooked gates, drifted alongside a fence of rotted palings that seemed to teeter into an abyss, and floated over bridges that arched above the purling waters of black canals. Near a certain street corner, a place of supernatural clarity and stillness, he saw two figures standing beneath the crystalline gaze of a lantern. It was ensconced high upon a wall of carved stone. Their shadows were perfect columns of blackness upon the livid pavement. Their faces were a pair of faded masks, concealing profound schemes. And they appeared to have lives of their own, with no awareness of their dreaming observer, who wished only to live with these specters and know their dreams, to remain in this place that owed nothing to corporeal existence. Never, it seemed, could he be forced to abandon this domain of wayward wonders. Never. Victor Kyrian awoke with a brief convulsion of his limbs, as if he had been chaotically scrambling to break his fall from an imaginary height. For a moment, he held his eyes closed, hoping to preserve the dissipating euphoria of the dream. Finally, he blinked once or twice. Moonlight through the curtainless window allowed him the image of his outstretched arms and his somewhat twisted hands. Releasing his awkward hold on the edge of the sheeted mattress, he rolled onto his back. Then he groped around until his fingers found the cord dangling from the light above the bed. A small, barely furnished room appeared. He pushed himself up and reached toward the painted metal nightstand. Through the spaces between his fingers, he saw the pale gray binding of a book and some of the dark letters tooled upon its cover. V. S. R. N. Suddenly, he withdrew his hand without touching the book, for the magical intoxication of the dream had died, and he feared he would not be able to revive it. Freeing himself from coarse bed covers, he planted his feet on the cold floor, elbows resting on his legs, hands loosely folded. His hair and eyes were pale, his complexion rather grayish, suggesting the color of certain clouds or that of long confinement. The only window in the room was just a few steps away, but he kept himself from approaching it, from even glancing in its direction. 
He knew exactly what he would see at that time of night. Tall buildings. Wide buildings. Dark buildings. A scattering of stars and lights. And some lethargic movement in the streets below. In so many ways, the city outside the window was a semblance of that other place, which now seemed impossibly far off and inaccessible. But the likeness was evident only to his inner vision, only in the recollected images he formed when his eyes were closed or out of focus. It would be difficult to conceive of a creature for whom this world its bare form, seen with open eyes, represented a coveted paradise. Now standing before the window, his hands deep in the pockets of a papery bathrobe, he saw that something was missing from the view, some crucial property that was denied to the stars above and the streets below, some unearthly essence needed to save them. Though unspoken, the word unearthly, reverberated in the room. In that place, and at that hour, the paradoxical absence, the missing quality, became clear to him. It was the element of unreality, or perhaps, of a reality so saturated with its own presence that it had made a leap into the unreal. Such was the secret sanctuary of Victor Kirian, a votary of that wretched sect of souls who believe that the only value of this world lies in its power, at certain times, to suggest another. Nevertheless, the place he now surveyed through the high window could never be anything but the most gauzy phantom of that other place. Nothing save a shadowy mimic of the anatomy of that great dream. And though there were indeed times when one might be deceived, isolated moments when a gift for disguise was triumphed, the impersonation could never be perfect or lasting. No true challenge to the rich unreality of Vistarian, where every formation suggested a thousand others, every sound disseminated everlasting echoes, every word founded a world. No horror, no joy, was the equal of the abysmally vibrant sensations known in this place that was elsewhere. This spellbinding retreat, where all experiences were interwoven to compose fantastic textures of feeling, a fine and dark tracery of limitless patterns. For everything in the unreal points to the infinite, and everything in Vesterian was unreal unbounded by the strictures of existing. Even its most humble aspects proclaim this truth. Was there anything or anywhere in tedious actuality that could conjure the abundant and strange imaginings in the dream? Then, as he focused his eyes upon a distant part of the city, he recalled the place that had opened the door this long-sought abode of exquisite disfigurations. Nothing of what lay within was intimated by its modest entranceway. A rectangle of smudged glass within another rectangle of scuffed wood. A battered thing 
lodged within a brick wall at the bottom of a stairway leading down from a crumbling street. And it pushed easily inward, merely a delicate formality between the underground shop and the outside world. Inside was an open room of vaguely circular shapes that seemed more like the lobby of an old hotel than a bookstore. The circumference of the room was composed of crowded shelves, whose separate sections were joined to one another to create a polygon of eleven sides, a long desk standing where a twelfth would have been. Beyond the desk stood more bookshelves, their considerable length leading into shadows. At the furthest point from this part of the shop, Victor Kirian began his circuit of the shelves, which appeared so promising in their array of ruddy bindings, like remnants of a luxuriant autumn. Very soon, however, he felt betrayed as the mystique of the Library de Grimoires was stripped away to reveal, in his eyes, a sideshow of charlatanry. For this disillusionment, he had only himself to blame. It was his own fault that he continually subjected himself to the discrepancy between what he had hoped to find and what he actually found in such establishments. In truth, there was little basis for his belief that there existed some arcana of a different kind altogether from that tendered by the books before him, all of which were sodden with an obscene reality. The other worlds portrayed in these books served only as annexes of this one. They were impostors of the authentic unreality, which was the only redemption for Victor Kirian. And it was this terminal point that he sought, not those guidebooks of the way to useless destinations, heavens or hells, that were mere pretexts for circumnavigating the real and reveling in it. For he dreamed of shadowed volumes that preached no earthly catechisms, but delineated only a tenebrous liturgy of the spectral and rites of salvation by way of meticulous derangement. His absolute, to dwell among the ruins of reality. And it seemed to surpass all probability that there existed no bibliographic representation of this dream. No elaboration of this vision in a delirious Bible that would be the blight of all others. A scripture that would begin with portents of apocalypse and end with the wreck of all creation. He had, in fact, come upon passages in certain books that approached this ideal, hinting to the reader, almost admonishing him that the pages before his eyes were about to offer a view from the abyss and cast a wavering light on desolate hallucinations. To become the wind in the dead of winter and howl the undoing of all that would abide in warmth and light. So might begin an enticing verse in a volume of esoterica. But soon the amazed visionary would falter retracting the promised flight to emaciated landscapes of unbeing, perhaps offering an apologetic for this lapse 
into the unreal. The work would then take up the time-worn theme, disclosing its true purpose and belaboring the most futile and profane of all ambitions. The dream of attaining some untainted good with mystic knowledge as its drudge. The vision of a disastrous enlightenment was conjured up in passing and then cast aside. What remained was invariably a metaphysics as systematically trivial and debased as the world it purported to transcend, a manual outlining the path to some hypothetical state of pure glory. What remained lost was the revelation that nothing ever known has ended in glory, that all which ends does so in exhaustion, confusion, and debris. All the same, the book that contained even a deceitful gesture toward Victor Kirian's truly eccentric absolute might indeed serve his purpose, directing the attention of a bookseller to selected contents of such books he would say, I have an interest in a certain subject area. Perhaps you will see. That is, I wonder, do you know of other, what should I say, sources that you would be able to recommend to assist me in my research? By which I mean. Sometimes it was referred to another bookseller, or to the owner of a private collection. Occasionally, it happened that he had been ludicrously misunderstood when he found himself on the fringe of a society devoted to some strictly demonic enterprise. The very bookshop in which Victor Kirian was now browsing represented only the most recent digression in a search without progress. But he had learned to be cautious and would try to waste as little time as possible in determining whether or not there was anything for him here. Thus, he intently flipped through the pages of one book after another. Absorbed as he was in perusing so much verbiage, he was startled when someone with a voice like that of a child spoke to him. Have you seen our friend? asked a nearby voice. Victor Kirian turned to face the stranger. The man was rather small and wore a black overcoat. His hair was also black and fell loosely across his forehead. Besides his general appearance, there was also something about his presence that made one think of a crow, a scavenging creature in wait. Has he come out of his sanctum? the man asked, gesturing toward the only empty desk in the dark area behind it. I'm sorry, I haven't seen anyone, Carrion replied. I only now noticed you. I can't help being quiet, said the man. Look at these little feet. He indicated his highly polished pair of black shoes. Without thinking, Carrion looked down. Then, feeling duped, he looked up again at the smiling stranger. You look very bored, said the human crow. I'm sorry. Never mind. I can see that I'm bothering you. 
Then the man walked away, his coat flapping slightly, and he began scanning some distant bookshelves. I've never seen you in here before, he said from across the room. I've never been in here before, Kyrian answered. Have you ever read this? The stranger asked, pulling down a book and holding up its wordless black cover. Never, Kyrian replied, without so much as glancing at the book. Somehow, this seemed the best action to take with this character, who appeared to be foreign in some indefinable way. Well, you must be looking for something special, continued the other man, replacing the black book on its shelf. And I know what that's like, when you're looking for something very special. Have you ever heard of a book? An extremely special book that is not, yes, that is not about something, but actually is that something. For the first time, the obnoxious stranger had managed to intrigue Kyrian rather than annoy him. That sounds, he started to say, but then the other man exclaimed, there he is, there he is, excuse me. It seemed that the proprietor the mutual friend, had finally made his appearance and was now standing behind the desk, looking toward his two customers. My friend, said the crow man, as he stepped with outstretched hand over to the smoothly bald and softly fat gentleman. The two of them shook hands. For a few moments they chatted quietly, much too quietly for Victor Curian to hear what they were saying. Then the crow man was invited behind the desk, and, led by the corpulent bookseller, made his way into the darkness at the back of the shop. In a distant corner of that darkness, the brilliant rectangle of a doorway suddenly flashed into outline, admitting through its frame a large, two-headed shadow, left alone among the worthless volumes of that shop. Victor Kirian felt the sad frustration of the uninvited he abandoned. More than ever, he had become infected with hopes and curiosities of an indeterminable kind, and he soon found it impossible to remain outside that radiant little room the other two had entered, and at whose door he presently stood in silence. The room was a cramped cubicle, within which stood another cubicle, formed by freestanding bookshelves creating four very narrow aisleways in the space between them. From the doorway, he could not see how the inner cubicle might be entered, but he heard the voices of the others whispering within. Stepping quietly, he began making his way along the perimeter of the room, his eyes surveying a wealth of odd-looking volumes. Immediately, he sensed that something of a special nature awaited his discovery, and the evidence for this intuition began to build. Each book that he examined served as a clue in this delirious investigation, a cryptic sign which engaged his powers of interpretation and imparted the faith to proceed. Many of the works were written in foreign languages he did not read. Some appeared to be composed in ciphers based on familiar characters, and others seemed to be transcribed in a wholly artificial cryptography. But in every one of these books, 
he found an oblique guidance, some feature of more or less indirect significance, a strangeness in the typeface, pages and bindings of uncommon texture, abstract diagrams suggesting no orthodox ritual or occult system. Even greater anticipation was inspired by certain illustrated plates, mysterious drawings, and engravings that depicted scenes and situations unlike anything he could name. And such works as Sinotholgus or the Nocturne of Tyne conveyed scenes so bizarre, so remote, from known texts and treatises of the esoteric tradition that he felt assured of the sense of his quest. The whispering grew louder, though no more distinct, as he edged around the corner of that inner cubicle and anxiously noted the opening at its far end. At the same time, he was distracted, for no apparent reason, by a small grayish volume leaning within a gap created by oversized tomes on either side. The little book had been set upon the highest shelf, making it necessary for him to stretch himself, as if on an upright torture rack, to reach it. Trying not to give away his presence by the sounds of his pain, he finally secured the ashen-colored object, as pale as his own coloring, between the tips of his first two fingers. Mutely, he strained to slide it quietly from its place. This act accomplished, he slowly shrunk down to his original stature and looked into the book's brittle pages. It seemed to be a chronicle of strange dreams. Yet somehow, the passages he examined were less a recollection of unruled visions than a tangible incarnation of them. Not mere rhetoric, but the thing itself, just as the crow man had described. The use of language in the book was errantly unnatural, and the book's author unknown. Indeed, the text conveyed the impression of speaking for itself, and speaking only to itself, its words being like shadows that were cast by no forms outside the book. But though this volume appeared to be composed of a vernacular of mysteries, its words did inspire a sure understanding and created in their reader a visceral apprehension of the phenomenon to which the characters cut into the front of the book gave name. Passing his right forefinger along these gnarled letters, which appeared to be deeply engraved into the volume's stiffly bound surface, Victor Curian could not feel their physicality. It was as if he intuited the word they spelled out. Vastarian. Could this book be a kind of invocation of a world in waiting of Genesis? And was it a world at all? Rather, the unreal essence of one. All natural elements purged from it by an ineffable process of extraction. All days distilled into dreams and nights into nightmares. Each passage he entered in the book both enchanted and appalled him with images and incidents so freakish and chaotic that his usual sense of these terms disintegrated along with everything else. Rampant oddity seemed to be the rule of the realm, 
while imperfection was the paradoxical source of idealities, miracles of aberrance, marvels of miscreation. There was horror, undoubtedly, but it was a horror uncompromised by any feeling of lost joy or a thwarted searching for the good. Instead, there was proffered a deliverance by damnation, and if Basterian was a nightmare, it was a nightmare transformed in spirit by the utter absence of refuge. Nightmare made normal. I'm sorry, I didn't see you had drifted in here, said the bookseller in a high, thin voice. He had just emerged from the inner chamber of the room and was standing with arms folded across his wide chest. Please don't touch anything. And may I take that from you? The right arm of the bookseller reached out, then returned to its former place when the man with the pale eyes did not relinquish the merchandise. I would like to purchase it, said Kirian. I'm sure I would if... Of course, if the price is reasonable, finished the bookseller. But who knows? You might not be able to appreciate how valuable these books are. The one in your hands, he said, removing a little pad and pencil from inside his jacket and scribbling briefly. He ripped off the top and held it up for the would-be buyer to see, and confidently put away all writing materials, as if that would be the end of it. But there must be some latitude for bargaining, Kirian protested. I'm afraid not, answered the bookseller. Not with something that is the only one of its kind, as are many of these volumes. Yet the book you are holding, that single copy... A hand touched the bookseller's shoulder and seemed to switch off his voice. Then the crow man stepped into the aisleway. His eyes fixed upon the object under discussion. He asked, Don't you find that book somewhat difficult? Difficult, repeated Carrion. I'm not sure. If you mean that the language is strange, I would have to agree, but... No, interjected the bookseller. That's not what he means at all. Excuse us for a moment, said the crow man. Then both men went back into the inner room, where they whispered for some time. When the whispering ceased, the bookseller came forth and announced that there had been a mistake. The book while something of a curiosity, was worth a good deal less than the price earlier quoted. The revised evaluation, while still costly, was within the means of this particular buyer, who agreed at once to pay it. Thus began Victor Kirian's preoccupation with a certain book, and a certain hallucinated world, though to make a distinction between these two phenomena ultimately seemed an error. The book, indeed, did not merely describe that strange world, but, in some obscure fashion, was a true composition of the thing itself, its very form incarnate. Each day thereafter, he studied the hypnotic episodes of that little book. Each night, as he dreamed, he carried out shapeless expeditions into fantastic topography. To all appearances, it seemed he had discovered the summit or abyss of the unreal, that utopia of exhaustion, confusion, 
and debris where reality ends and where one may dwell among its ruins. And it was not long before he found it necessary to revisit that twelve-sided shop, intending to question the obese bookseller on the matter of the book and unintentionally learning the truth of how it came to be sold. When he arrived at the bookstore, sometime in the middle of a grayish afternoon, Victor Kirion was surprised to find that the door, which had opened so freely on his previous visit, was now firmly locked. It would not even rattle in its frame when he nervously pushed and pulled at the handle. Since the interior of the store was lighted, he took a coin from his pocket and began tapping on the glass. Finally, someone came forward from the shadows of the back room. Closed, the bookseller pantomimed on the other side of the glass. But, Kirian argued, pointing to his wristwatch. Nevertheless, the wide man shouted. Then, after scrutinizing the disappointed patron, the bookseller unlocked the door and opened it far enough to carry on a brief conversation. And what is it I can do for you? I'm closed, so you'll have to come back some other time if... I only wanted to ask you something. Do you remember the book that I bought from you some days ago? Yes, I remember, replied the bookseller, as if quite prepared for the question. And let me say that I was quite impressed, as of course was the other man. Impressed, Kirian repeated. Ecstatic is more the word in his case, continued the bookseller. He said to me, the book has found its reader, and what could I do but agree with him? I'm afraid I don't understand, said Kirian. The bookseller blinked and said nothing. After a few moments, he reluctantly explained, I was hoping that by now you would understand. He hasn't contacted you, the man, who was here that day. No, why would he? The bookseller blinked again and said, Well, I suppose there's no reason for you to stand out there. It's getting very cold. Don't you feel it? Please come in. As Victor Curian entered, the bookseller stuck his head outside, looking up at the stairs that led down to his shop and scanning as much of the street above as he could see. Then he closed the door and pulled Kirian a little to one side of it, whispering, There's just one thing I would like to tell you. I made no mistake the other day about the price of that book, and it was that price which was paid by the other man minus the small amount that you contributed. I didn't cheat anyone, least of all him. He would have been happy to pay even more to get that book into your hands. And though I'm not exactly sure of his reasons, I think you should know that. But why didn't he simply purchase the book for himself? asked Kirian. The bookseller seemed confused. It was of no use to him. Perhaps it would have been better if you hadn't given yourself away when he asked you about the book, how much you knew. But I don't know anything, apart from what I've read in the book itself. I came here, now, to look into its provenance. Its provenance? You're the one who should be telling me about that. I didn't even know I had it on my shelves. 
I tried to price it out of your hands, but I should have expected that he wouldn't have allowed that. I'm not asking anything of you. Don't misunderstand. I've already violated every precept of discretion in this matter. This is such an exceptional case, though. Very impressive. If, in fact, you are the reader of that book. Realizing that, at best, he had been led into a dialogue of mystification, and possibly one of lies, Victor Kirian had no regrets when the bookseller held the door open for him to leave. But long before he learned why the bookseller had been so impressed with him, and why the crow-like stranger had been so generous, the bestower of the book, who was blind to its mysteries. In due course, he learned that the stranger had given only so that he might possess the thing he could gain in no other way, that he was reading the book with borrowed eyes and stealing its secrets from the soul of its rightful reader. At last, it became clear what was happening to him and how his strange nights of dreaming were being affected from inside. This phenomenon was not immediately apparent, though. For several more nights, as the outlines of Asterion slowly pushed through the obscurity of his sleep, a vast terrain emerged from its own profound slumber and loomed forth from a place without coordinates or dimension. And, as the oddly angled monuments became manifest once again, they seemed to expand and soar high above, coaxing his sight toward them. Progressively, the scene acquired nuance and articulation. Steadily, the creation became dense and intricate within its black womb. The streets were sinuous entrails winding through that dark body, and each edifice was the jutting bone of a skeleton hung with thin musculature of shadows. But little by little, Victor Curian began noticing that something was in the course of change during his dreams. The world of Vesterian seemed more and more to be losing its consistency, its suchness. Then one night, just as his vision reached out to embrace fully the mysterious and jagged form of a given dream, it all appeared to pull away abandoning him on the edge of a dreamless void. The treasure de Dolon was receding, shrinking into the distance. Now all he could see was a single street bordered by two converging rows of buildings, and at the opposite end of that street, rising up taller than the buildings themselves, stood a great figure in silhouette. This colossus made no movement or sound, but nonetheless increasingly dominated the horizon, where the single remaining street seemed to end. From this position, the towering shadow was absorbing all other shapes into its own, which gradually gained in stature as the dreamscape withdrew and diminished. And the outline of this titanic figure appeared to be that of a man. Yet, it was also that, a dark, and devouring bird. Though Victor Curian managed to awake before the scavenger had thoroughly consumed what was not its own, there was no assurance that he would always be able to do so. 
and that the dream would not pass into the hands of another. And so he conceived and executed the act that was necessary to keep possession of what he had desired for so long. Rastarian, he whispered, as he stood in the shadows and moonlight of that bare little room, where a monolithic metal door prevented his escape. Within that door, a small square of thick glass was implanted so that he might be watched by day and by night. And there was an unbending web of heavy wire covering the window, which overlooked the city that was not Asterian. Never, chanted a voice, which might have been his own. Then more insistently, I told him that. I told him. Never. 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 When the door opened, and some men in uniforms entered the room, they found Victor Kyrian screaming to the raucous limits of his voice, and trying to scale the thick metal mesh veiling of the window, as if he were dragging himself along some unlikely route of liberation. Of course, they pulled him to the floor, and they stretched him out upon the bed, where his wrists and ankles were tightly strapped. Then, through the doorway, strode a nurse who carried a slender syringe crowned with a silvery needle. During the injection, he continued to scream words, which everyone in the room had heard before, each outburst developing the theme of his unjust confinement. How the man he had murdered was using him in a horrible way, a way impossible to explain or make credible. The man could not read the book. There, that book. And was stealing the dreams to which the book had spawned. Stealing my dreams, he mumbled softly, as the drug began to take effect. Stealing my... Stewards of Victor Kirian's incarceration remained around his bed for a few moments, silently staring at its restrained occupant. Then one of them pointed to the book, and initiated a conversation, now familiar to them all. What should we do with it? It's been taken away enough times already. But then, there's always another that appears. There's no point to it. Look at these pages. Nothing. There's nothing written anywhere. So why does he sit reading them for hours? He does nothing else. I think it's time we told someone in authority. Of course, we could do that. But what exactly would we say? That a certain inmate should be forbidden from reading a certain book. That he becomes violent. And then they'll ask why we can't keep the book away from him. Or him from the book. What should we say to that? There would be nothing we could say. Could you imagine what lunatics we would seem? As soon as we opened our mouths, it would be it for all of us. And when someone asks what the book means to him, or even what its name is, what would be our answer? As if in response to this question, a word was uttered by the criminally insane creature bound to the bed. But none of them could understand the meaning of what he had said. 
They're a part of a world of overbearing and yet deficient realities. They were shackled for life to their own bodies, while he was now in a place that owed nothing to corporeal existence. And never, it truly seemed, could he be forced to abandon this domain of wayward wonders. Never. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope that you have very sweet and creepy dreams.